Well, good morning. It is um, indeed my privilege to be here. I'm thankful for the ways in which for the past couple of years you've cared for our family as they uh, departed from us and uh, moved up here to the beautiful, beautiful Pacific Northwest. But um, we're grateful for uh, you as a family to them as a church home. They've been really blessed, as have we as we've uh, made our way up here occasionally to love on our grandkids. So um, I want, to mention, uh, I want to mention a distance, and I want to know who knows what significance that distance has. The distance, 3.1 miles. 3.1 miles. Anybody know what that, right here? It's a 5K. So runners would know that's a 5K. That's not why the number has significance for me. Significance for me, as best I can tell, is that 3.1 miles is the longest I have ever run without stopping. The longest I had ever gone without stopping. Um, the year, 1984. Um, I was a strapping 24-year-old guy, very athletic. I loved to do all kinds of things that involved running. I played tennis. I played racquetball. I played basketball. I played soccer. Um, loved it. But I loathed running. Loathed running for running's sake. It had no appeal whatsoever until something very unexpected happened in early summer of 1984, when my dad told my brother and I that we were going to be giving the running opportunity of a lifetime. We were going to have the opportunity to carry the Olympic torch on its journey to the L.A. Coliseum, Memorial Coliseum, for the 1984 Summer Games. Well, all of a sudden, that changes, that changes everything. Um, in fact, um, I happen to have uh, the very torch. Uh, that we used at the time, complete with a severe ding when it fell in the 1994 Northridge earthquake. But we won't talk about that. Um, Yeah, so each runner would carry the torch for a kilometer. Now, a kilometer is about six-tenths of a mile. And uh, the last thing I was going to do was let my country down by being, you know, not able to finish the six-tenths of a mile. So I started the training. And I ran and I ran. And, and by the time I got to two miles, where I could run you know, steady for two miles, I thought I was in good shape. The day arrives. And uh, I got to tell you, it was pretty special. My one-kilometer leg was on a stretch of rural road through strawberry fields in Oxnard, California. But it ended at a major intersection there. So um, I've got, I've got the, the torch and the flame's been passed and, I, and I'm making my way and there's a few scattered people and then like the closer I get to the intersection, the more people are just starting to like line the streets and they start clapping. And they start clapping and clapping and man, I'm like 40 or 50 yards up in the intersection and, and um, the crowd is bigger and the cheering is going and the clapping is going. And, you know, I'm 24 years old. I get, I get caught up in the moment I'm running, and I thrust the torch into the air, and I run the rest of the way, and I threw the crowd just into a patriotic frenzy. I mean, it was just, the intersection was just wild, and, and I got to the place, and someone was waiting with their torch, and I passed the flame, and, and, uh, and it was over. And the flame went, and uh, my five minutes of fame were done. And... Um, you know, it was, I was kind of inspired, though, by the whole, by the whole event. So I decided, I'm, you know, I'm going to keep up this running thing. I'm going to try this. Like I, 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 so I, I started running, and um, I'd run at night. I'd run around the neighborhood. I'd mapped out a track. And the night, I still remember to this day, the night that I ran 3.1 miles 
without stopping. I threw my hands in the air. No one was there. I threw my hands in the air, and it was like I was, on, I was Rocky Balboa on the top of the steps of the Philadelphia Art Museum. Like, it was just a, a momentous occasion. And, um, and then I stopped because I don't like to run. Like, I just had to realize I don't, I don't like it. Um, the reward wasn't worth the investment. Just wasn't. And that several-month period of my life was like a little microcosm, in some ways, of the Christian life, where um, there, there are things that, with a little bit of effort, it, it's easy to get through. It's easy to press through. And there are other things, when it requires endurance over the long haul, that it's either just not worth it to us, or we just don't have the ability to keep enduring, to keep pressing on. You know, I don't know if your experience here in Washington was anything like our experience in Northern California, um, but certainly I think we'd all acknowledge that over these past few years, things have been very different. And for some, they've been very difficult. And it's hard sometimes in the midst of a swirling number of reasons of things that are going on that are impacting people's lives or that are impacting the church, impacting the world around us. It's, it can be hard to keep pressing on. Um, it can be hard when it feels like we just don't have it in us to do so. It, it, it really, it, it, I think it's the kind of endurance that the leadership team here at Living Water has had to demonstrate over these past several years and have done so well. And in Hebrews chapter 12, as it was just read, um, we get a little bit of a refresher course on running with endurance pressing on when it doesn't seem like we can. And it's really an endurance that comes from uh, our understanding and through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not going to be a comprehensive treatment of the passage this morning, but uh, I'm hoping to at least develop three points from the text as we work our way through it. Uh, verses 1 through 4, the motivation, kind of looking at different aspects of endurance, the motivation for endurance then in uh, verses 5 through 11, it's method. And then briefly, by comparison, it's manifestation in 12 through 14. So let me just give a little bit of an introduction. I know you've been going through the book of Colossians. You've got Advent messages there during the season. We're diving into the late into the chapters of the book of Hebrews. So let me give you at least a little bit of background. Um, while there are different views on precisely how many different audiences are in view that the writer is seeking to address to the letter uh, to the Hebrews. At the very least, we know that the author is talking to a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, who were struggling to stand fast in the midst of and in, in the kind of the coming of a persecution upon the church. Um, they, were, they were teetering on the possibility of going back to Jewish tradition, going back to the Jewish ways, kind of trying to build this, you know, Jewish and Christian kind of thing. And, and he's trying to help them to understand that they need to press on. They need to press on and hold fast their confession of faith. Um, that which they come to understand about Jesus, they need to live that out. And I think, simply put, if you were to try to do a, a theme for the entire book of Hebrews, it could be summed up in three words. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. It seems to be just what he's trying to drive home. In the first six chapters, 
He talks about how Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He develops that. In the next four chapters, uh, 7 through 10, he talks about the ways that Jesus' priesthood is better than the old system. Sacrifice and the priesthood, all of that is better through Christ. And then he moves into chapter 11, and he exhorts them to live by faith. They're to live by faith, and he, he uses a host of Old Testament examples of faith. As he walks through chapter 11, he works from Genesis through Exodus, from the time of the judges, through the prophets, just, just listing and naming people and evidences of how God has been faithful. And, and the writer shows that retreating back to the familiar way of doing things was not the way or not the example that had been set for them. Abraham did not go back to Ur. Moses did not go back to Egypt. Joshua did not go back to wandering. No, they realized that as God provided, as God led, they, they were to keep pressing on. They weren't to go back to what was comfortable. You know, the examples of faith given in chapter 11, imperfect as they were, were still examples to us demonstrating that faith produces and is really evidenced by a patient endurance, a patient ability to keep moving forward. James says something similar, right? Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Why? Because as you do, it's working what in you? Steadfastness or endurance. Yeah, the trials at work in you to produce this. And if the examples of these Old Testament saints demonstrated a patient endurance with only the hope of seeing the coming Messiah, how much more should these believers patiently endure, having seen and known the Messiah? How much more should we, with the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God in our lives? So, if you haven't already, uh, yeah, turn, turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll look at this first motivation for endurance in those first four verses. You know, what is it that should compel us to press on? Uh, to, to train so that we can run with endurance. Um, let me refresh our memories. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's interesting that in this little section, Wearsby, the commentator, suggests that the passage encourages three different looks that the believer should take that will help us in, in understanding how we can press on. The first is this, to take a look around. To take a look around. Uh, as I just mentioned, chapter 11, which is often referred to as the hall of faith, um, provides example after example of those who lived by faith. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. On and on he walks through. And after reviewing this history of faith, the writer says, therefore... And reminds us, so on the basis of that, he reminds us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Talking about those people 
in the Old Testament that he had mentioned. Um, Some have taken this to mean that it's as if there are throngs of saints that are sort of in maybe some kind of a heavenly stadium that are up there cheering us on, like they're watching us run the race and they're cheering us on. Um, And while my experience in 1984 was somewhat similar, barring the saints part and the, the stadium part and all that, I mean, there were people there cheering me on The fact of the matter is, um, I don't think that's how this text is best understood if we understand the term witness and what that meant back then. Witness is never used um, to describe a spectator, at least this particular word. It's it's used of someone like you would see in a courtroom who has something to tell us. They simply have something to, to explain to us, some information that could shed light on a particular situation. Um, So, what is it that this cloud of witnesses sheds light on for us? I mean, in short, that God is faithful and that he is enough. He's enough to see us through. He's enough to strengthen and help us. I mean, in reality, think about it. Who doesn't have the least bit more hope or encouragement when you realize that Samson is listed in the hall of faith? I mean... How, how many of us don't find some encouragement in all that Joseph went through or all that Job went through to see how God cared for them? Um, whose faith isn't bolstered even just a little when thinking about a tentative, stammering-tongued man named Moses and all that God accomplished through him for his purposes? The Bible testifies to God's faithfulness uh, as we look at the lives of people contained therein they testify to God's faithfulness. As you look at family members or friends who are walking faithfully with God, they testify to God's faithfulness. All we have to do is look around and we see evidences of God's faithfulness and that should bolster our faith and that should drive us forward in our quest to run with endurance. So we start with a look around. Secondly, a look at ourselves. A look at ourselves um, how many of you, just out of curiosity, played baseball or softball when you were growing up? Or maybe still do, baseball or softball. You knew when you were preparing to go to the plate that you generally warmed up, not just with the single bat that you were going to use. You either took up two bats or you took up a bat that had a, a weight on it, a donut. We used to call it back in my day. I don't know if they still do. And, and you, you, you swung the bat warming up with this extra weight. Why? Well, because when you got up there, If you were used to swinging something heavier, now you're swinging something lighter, you increase bat speed and a better chance of making good solid contact with the ball. Everybody knew this. In in track, back in the day, I don't know if they still do, not a runner, told you, Uh, I don't know if they still do, Um, they would put weights on their ankles and train with weights on their ankles, but you would never see a runner keep the weights on his ankles when it came time to run. What would they do? They'd cast them aside. They'd lay them aside. It would sap their strength. It would ruin their energy. It would ruin their ability to compete. It would be foolish to continue to wear those weights. So they lay them aside. And that's the message that the writer's trying to communicate here. Running with endurance requires us to lay aside the weights that encumber us. The weights that slow us down. To lay aside, it's the same word that Paul used in Ephesians chapter 4, same word he used in Colossians chapter 3, when it talks about putting off the deeds of the flesh. Um, 
It's a practice that Josh covered a few months ago when he was working through that portion of Colossians chapter 3. Laying aside, setting aside. We need to cast off those things that are hindering us from competing effectively. Um, Now, what are those weights that encumber, that hinder our progress and need to be put off? Some would be quick to just jump to the idea of sin, sin generally, but the fact of the matter is the writer in the very next phrase talks about the sin which clings so closely. So, so what are these weights? What are these things that he's referring to? Um, I believe really the weights are just the stuff of life. They're just the things in life, the good things that we settle for, rather than the best things. Um, they're the things that distract or divide or so discontent, um, things that feed our flesh, uh, things that uh, liberty allows, but perhaps are simply just not profitable. Uh, it may even be the things he's talking about are things that cause us to doubt and to disbelieve as these believers were struggling to do, hold on to their confession of faith. Faith needs to be fed. And too often, to continue the analogy, we have a tendency to feed ourselves junk food and try and exist on it. It tastes good, but we won't last long with it. We won't, we won't be able to function effectively. We become weighed down by things that have little value when we cling to those things as opposed to the things that, that Christ would have us hold on to. And to the extent that something weakens our faith, it needs to be put off. It needs to be put off. It hinders our ability to run with endurance. So those are the weights. I mean, perhaps for you, a a little personal inventory is in in order as you start 2023. I know we're a couple weeks in, but, you know, what what occupies your time? What occupies your thoughts? What occupies or takes your energies? Maybe it's a a good discussion topic for you with with your community group or maybe with your family over lunch or or maybe just with other friends. Um, You know, seek to be intentional. What are the things that tend to weigh you down that you can and should put off? Um, Perhaps, uh, again, a little laying aside is in order, and and then that would be a greater opportunity for uh, you to be in the Word and the Word to be in you. That was a challenge you got last week from Pastor Tate. So I'd encourage you to do the same. And then the writer moves from that to kind of the obvious when he talks about putting off sin, the sin that entangles or the sin that clings so closely. The term literally means to skillfully surround. So when it talks about something clinging closely or entangling, it's talking about something that is skillfully surrounding us. So, um, I mean, it, it, it surrounds us for the purpose of retarding our movement. I mean, how many of you have ever tried to put on a pair of jeans or a shirt or a sweater that through no fault of your own doesn't fit like it used to. And you find yourself a little bit constrained by this thing. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the picture that the writer is painting. That's what sin does. It skillfully surrounds us in an effort to retard our movement, to retard our ability to run with endurance. That's what, that's what sin does. I, I know that for, for some, there are probably some sins that you're less prone to commit than others, but chances are you're prone to commit some. The sin that continually seeks to ensnare you and entangle you, the sin that skillfully surrounds you, intent on retarding your growth as a believer in Christ, intent on impeding your progress. And it's interesting that the, waiter, the, the way the writer juxtaposes those images, 
because we are called to run with endurance the race that's set before us. And a look around reveals that there's this cloud of witness that surrounds us, giving testimony to God's faithfulness. And then he mentions, yeah, and then there's this sin which surrounds us, seeking to impede us, seeking to derail us. Um, and, and, and so now we're set with a situation, okay, I, I've, I've, I've looked you know, around and I've looked at myself, what's the answer then if I have two things competing for my affections? And he rolls into the only answer, which is a look to Jesus. And he moves there in, in, in verse 2, uh, that we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith. Um, looking to the word that's uh, used there in the Greek is only used here in the scriptures. Um, and it implies that the readers were to take their eyes, literally take their eyes off of one thing and to fix them on something else. I know it's probably hypothetical, but for those of you with children who had children when they were younger, I don't know if this experience was ever yours, but there were literally times that I had to t- get my children and say, say, I'm not going to use Ryan. I'll say, Josh, Josh, look at me. No, no, no. Look at my face. No, no. Josh, right here. Look at my eyes. Look at my eyes. I'd have to, I'd have to go that far to get him to take his attention off of whatever it was that was distracting and to look, to fix his eyes on me so that we could communicate. That's the, that's the portrait that's being painted here, rather than looking at the sin that so easily entangles or the things that weigh us down, verse 2 compels us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Take our eyes off those things, fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the originator, the author, the founder of our faith and the finisher of our faith. That's how we'll have the strength to compete. Uh, we're to give him our complete and undivided attention. We fix our eyes on him. And when the road gets hard and the race feels long and we're not sure, quite frankly, if we have the desire to even continue or the ability to do so, um, we find that as we look to him, we see an extraordinary example of patient endurance. Driven by the joy that was set before him, it says, namely, obedience to the Father's will and securing the salvation of lost souls. Jesus endured the cross and is now seated in glory at the Father's right hand. And as we fix our eyes on him and ponder his example, verse 3 actually exhorts us to take that even to another level, to look more intently. We are to consider him. I know in the English language, that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot to consider something. I'll I'll think about it. I'll consider it. That's not what's the the picture here. The Greek word analog is, I'm going to forget that. Uh, Analogizomai is the word. Analogizomai is the word. Just the sound of the beginning part sounds like analogy. And that's what he's saying. I I want you, when you look at Jesus, I want you to construct an analogy and think about your suffering and where you are. Think about his suffering and what he endured and how do the two compare? Well, they don't really. They they, they don't really compare. Um, But that's the contrast that we're supposed to kind of do. When we do that, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably have to acknowledge that it doesn't take us a whole lot of pain to want relief. And it doesn't take us a whole lot of hostility for us to feel persecuted. It wasn't, it's not anything really experienced that we experience that compares to what Christ endured. And knowing that he is with us always 
should be an encouragement for us to press on. He's accomplished what we couldn't, but he gives us the strength by his spirit to accomplish what we can't. Yeah, the believers that were being written to hadn't maybe got to that point. Verse 4 states they hadn't resisted or stood against the opposition to the point of shedding blood. But it was coming. They were experiencing some measure of persecution. It was certainly coming. Um, so as we look around at the proof of God's faithfulness in the lives of Old Testament saints, as we lay aside the things that weigh us down, um, as we look to Jesus and his patient endurance, we find the motivation to press on in the race. And, and, and these three looks should ultimately help prevent two things as well that we see according to verse 3. First, it, to help prevent us from growing weary. From growing weary. In some senses, it's the opposite of enduring. I mean, we see the church in Ephesus um, in Revelation chapter 2 being commended. I know you're enduring patiently. Uh, you're bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. That was their commendation from Christ and that's exactly what the writer is exhorting Christians to do here. So it helped prevent growing weary. It also helps prevent us from losing heart, from becoming faint-hearted or discouraged in, soul, in our souls, giving up in a sense. Um, these are all ways that that last phrase is translated. And, and I just wonder, have you ever been there? Ever been in a place where you're just laboring, you're doing all you can to press on, and that's all you can do? The fact of the matter is, for each one of us, I suspect there are times when then we've been tempted to just kind of give in in areas. And in those moments, when we realize that running just isn't fun anymore, in those moments... The word says to consider him, consider Christ, and fix your eyes on him. And in so doing, we gain much-needed perspective to persevere. You know, I don't know if anybody could have predicted what would have happened over these last several years to our country and to the world, what things were going to be like, nor do we know what we'll face this year. Uh, for some, it could be unexpected family news. It could be the loss of a job. Um, it could be hostility or antagonism from a coworker or even a friend or a neighbor. It, it, it could be that you'll find yourself wrestling with that sin that so skillfully surrounds you and bests you most of the time. So these examples in Hebrews chapter 11 and the example of Christ in Hebrews chapter 12, I hope they offer a resounding encouragement to stay the course. Keep pressing on running the race. I pray that God enables us to do that. Well, from looking at his uh, endurance, his motivation, let's look now to its method. In verses 5 through um, 11, Mark read those earlier. It's interesting that in these verses, we see one of the methods that God uses to build within us or develop within us this patient endurance. It's not something he leaves to chance. It's not something that uh, he passively sits by and waits to see if it happens in the lives of his children. No, he's actively engaged in the process. He's actively engaged, and the writer takes his readers back to Proverbs chapter 3. If you'd like to go back there, you may. You can turn to Proverbs chapter 3 for just a quick moment. Um, and he's going to quote from verses 11 and 12, the writer in Hebrews. But it's interesting, kind of this, this series of couplets that we see um, that, that Proverbs 3 shows us. Solomon here is writing, instructing his son. Um, and he gives them kind of these, these practical guidelines for life. And he uses a number of conditional statements. So if you, I'm just going to kind of summarize, but if you were walking through that text, you would see in verses 1 and 2, don't forget my teaching, don't forget my commandments. Why? Well, 
because length of days and peace they'll add. He goes to the next couplet. Don't let love and faithfulness leave you. Why? Well, you'll find favor and success. Five and six. Many of you probably have that memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Acknowledge him in all your ways. Why? He'll make your paths straight. He'll lead you. Verses seven through eight. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Why? It brings healing and refreshment. And then he finishes with verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth. Why? You'll have plenty. So these, these five couplets speak kind of proverbially about the tangible blessing that comes from following the command or the commands that were stated. Again, he's just instructing his son in things that are wise to do, um, things that generally carry that kind of connected blessing. But then in verses 11 and 12, he takes a different slant. And this is where the writer in Hebrews chapter 12 takes us. Because there, we, we don't see the blessing behind the command. We, we actually see rather the basis for the command. When he says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Why? Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Just out of curiosity, I'm, how many of you have that verse like framed it on your wall at home? Do not despise the discipline because he disciplines the son he loves. Nobody. Life verse, anybody? Life verse, no. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. I thought about putting it as my screensaver, but I didn't even do that. Um, yeah. I mean, we give mental assent to the fact that God uses discipline in our life or intends to use discipline in our lives. But, but in reality, how many of us truly welcome it? How many of us truly invite God to do that work in us in whatever form it may come uh, years ago Steve Green a songwriter had penned a song called the refiner's fire and in the refiner's fire in the second verse he writes the following he says I'm learning now to trust his touch to crave the fire's embrace for though my past with sin was etched his mercies did erase each time his purging cleanses deeper, I'm not sure that I'll survive. Yet the strength in growing weaker keeps my hungry soul alive. He had come to the point of understanding the reality that, that when God is at work in that way, he is accomplishing things in our lives that he could never accomplish otherwise. I mean, what, what is it that ultimately enables us to truly long for this kind of work? To some degree, I think we need to have a better understanding of discipline. And, and we'll look just kind of briefly or quickly through, through what I'm just referring to as discipline's distinction. Because oftentimes, when we think of discipline, we think punishment. And the two are very different. At least they are most of the time. Generally speaking, as an example, punishment is a consequence for an action, for a particular action. It's the imposition of a penalty for a particular offense. Uh, it satisfies, in a sense, justice's demands. Uh, you might say, commit the crime, you do the time. It would be a fitting modern-day proverb for that kind of notion. Discipline, on the other hand, at times it may be a consequence for actions, but it's primarily used for the purpose of instruction. It's used to train, it's used to equip, it's used to correct, um, it's not necessarily linked to any particular action or even attitude or inaction. It's just something God's faithful to do. 
make parallels with your own children in that and as you discipline your children. Punishment, another contrast, punishment is oftentimes administered in anger. It's in the heat of the moment and at times without much thought. Go to your room and stay there for three months. You know, that kind of thing. That's, that's punishment, unreasonable punishment. Uh, punishment can even get to the point where it escalates to abuse. Discipline, on the other hand, is thoughtfully intentional. It's exercised in and with love. That's its, that's its driving force. Patience on the part of the one imposing the discipline is a crucial part of the process. Thirdly, I'd say this. Punishment from a biblical perspective is generally reserved for the wicked. It's reserved for the wicked or those acting wickedly. I mean, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica that the Lord will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Um, that's punishment. Discipline, however, is not for the wicked. Discipline is for sons. Discipline is for the child of God. God is treating you as sons, verse 7 says. For what son is there who the Father does not discipline? You know, the, these are not simply two sides of the same coin, punishment and discipline. They're actually two separate coins that occasionally look similar. And if you're here this morning and you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you can rest in the glorious truth that Christ took your punishment. Christ, uh, sin's consequence that you uh, should have paid the price for has been dealt with. And God's justice has been satisfied. And his wrath has been poured out on Christ in our place. We don't receive the punishment we deserve because Christ offered himself in our place as our substitute. I mean, is God the righteous judge? Absolutely. Um, will, will we one day give an account for how we've lived this life? Absolutely. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the child of God has no fear of the final verdict. We will not stand before him waiting to see if he says guilty or not guilty. Those who have been saved by him and embraced by him know that we have a future and a hope waiting for us. Um, you know, maybe that's hard to grasp because of the father relationship that you had within your own family. Maybe it's just hard to grasp because grace is a hard thing to grasp sometimes. Why do we deserve the things that God has granted to us? Whatever the reason, we have to strive to put away the notion of judgment and punishment and see discipline for what it truly is, an act of love. I like the way Spurgeon uh, framed it. Uh, when God afflicts his child, chastisement is applied in love. His strokes are all of them put there by the hand of love. The rod has been baptized in deep affection before it is laid on the believer's back. God doth not afflict willingly nor grieve us for naught but out of love and affection because he perceives that if he leaves us unchastised, we will bring upon ourselves misery 10,000-fold greater than we shall suffer by his slight rebukes and the gentle blows of his hand. Um, we, we need to understand this if we're to rightly apply this and to see how God works in us endurance. So just having seen the distinctions, just quickly let's look at punishment and discipline and discipline's description. Um, the text will give us some examples. And first, I would just say this. The discipline is a family thing. Discipline is a family thing. He, he disciplines because we are his children. We discipline our kids because they are our children. Disciplining, actually, from the Lord proves our sonship. Uh, 
It proves our relationship to him. As parents, we generally speaking should not or do not discipline children that are not part of our family. And the discipline is for the family. And likewise, God does not instruct or reprove those who are not a part of his family. So discipline's a family thing. Second, I would say discipline is for our good. It's for our good. Parents don't always get this right with their kids. I mean, who among us has perfectly disciplined their children? I would say probably none, but, but God always gets it right. He always gets it right and does what's right. So thirdly, discipline has a clear goal in view. You can kind of see it in verse 10. We're disciplined for a short time. Earthly fathers disciplined for a short time. Um, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That we may share his holiness. I mean, if all we do is temporarily change behavior when we're disciplined, again, hypothetically, you've probably never seen that in your families. But if, if, that's, if that was the case, you know, we're, we're no better than the Pharisees. We're no better than those that look good on the outside. But we're just empty bones on the inside. No, he wants to change us through and through that we might share in his holiness. And then fourthly, discipline produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. If we allow it to, we allow it to do its work. We must let it exercise us. So the next time life throws you what seems to be a curveball, at least from our limited perspective, recognize what it is. A sovereign God at work who is seeking to train and instruct and grow one of his children. God doesn't do random. He is always purposeful. And we're not to regard it lightly. We're not to regard his discipline lightly by murmuring about it or complaining about it or resisting it. No, we're, we're not to faint. We're not to lose heart. Thinking that our failures and inadequacies are once again being punished by a capricious God who, who uh, you know, we just can't seem to catch a break from. I mean, think about it. When we chafe under God's instructive but loving hand, we dishonor and disrespect the one who does all things for our good, is working all things for our good and for his glory, for the one who's faithful to complete the work he's begun in us. I think we'd all say we desire that. And this is part of the process. And it needs not just to be endured, but embraced so that we may endure. All discipline seems painful, not pleasant in the moment, the writer would say. But according to James, even that should be considered joy. Trials prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is actively at work in our life. And that ought to get us fired up in a good way. That ought to have us encouraged that God is at work in us. What a light it would be to those around us if we embraced rather than despised God's discipline in our life. Well, lastly and quickly, we look at uh, endurance's manifestation in verses 12 to 14. Um, Let me just refresh our memories. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We we see first here a call to strengthen the weak. If we allow discipline to have its work in us and accomplish its work in us and change us, we'll be better equipped to run the race with endurance. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, I have never been a distance runner, but I know enough about running that arms and hands are almost as important as the legs when it comes to running. And when you see someone start to flag a little bit, when you see someone starting to get tired, you'll notice their, their arms are going down. Their hands are going down. They start to 
droop and their legs start to give give out and their knees buckle as you were that's kind of he's still carrying the same illustration over um so i mean years ago jamie and i had the opportunity to go to israel um and um if you've ever been to israel one of the things they like to do is stop and let you go to see masada and um, you can take a tram which is what all sane people do or uh, because I just had to. Um, I was going to climb to the top of Masada with a group of people. Uh, I'd been dealing with plantar fasciitis like two weeks prior to going on this trip. I had to get a cortisone shot in my foot just so I could walk. That's a whole other story. Uh, and, um, and we got there, and I, so I just had to do it. We weren't a quarter of the way up. It was 108 degrees down to the bottom. It was probably hotter at the top. And uh, I mean, we weren't a quarter of the way and I was literally about to just give up and lay down, and they could just like get a stretcher for me and go. Like it's rigorous. And if it wasn't for the fact that a good friend of mine stayed with me and gave me water when mine ran out and gave me encouragement when mine was gone, I'd probably still be on the snake path right now on the way up to Masada. Um, I, I, I experienced drooping hands and weak knees, like literally. But, but the picture he's kind of painting here is not necessarily literal. It's a, it's a figurative picture of just someone that is, yeah, they're just feeling it. They're just losing it. They've just been struck. And you know, a little important distinction as you look at verse 12, the, the ESV actually makes an interpretive decision by saying your drooping hands and your weak knees. Your isn't really in there in the Greek. It, again, it can be interpreted to, to include that. Most of the other translations will say the hands that are drooping or the knees that are weak. Um, and the implication there, I think, is that we're to lift any drooping hands, any wheeze, knees that are weak. Um, it may be that we need strengthening, and it may be that others around us need strengthening and encouragement as well. Those who are falling behind, those who are immature, those who are too proud to take a tram, those that, are, those that are stuck, those that have been growing weary and lost heart. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it. We are charged to lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which clings so closely, uh, put that off, look to Jesus our, as our example, so that we do not grow weary or faint-hearted. And because we don't do that perfectly, the Father disciplines us trains us, instructs us to get to, so that he can train us in holiness and righteousness and endurance and see those things formed in our lives so that we can become usable instruments in the lives of others to strengthen their weak knees and to lift their drooping hands. It's really quite a process of seeing God at work through his people. Uh, you know, maybe it's a spiritual version of paying it forward. Whatever it is, it's not a random act of kindness it's an intentional, purposeful act of obedience to the word of God as we seek to support and strengthen others. Second, to straighten the path. We're to make straight paths for our feet. Uh, Proverbs 3, which we looked at earlier, earlier talked about the fact that the Lord will make straight the path. Here we are exhorted to do the same. Literally, the word for path means the track of a wheel, the track that a wheel would run in. We're to keep that straight. In other words, don't add your, to your aggravation or the aggravation of those that you're seeking to help by wandering off the track, by wandering off the course. Stay the course. Keep the faith, um, lest the immature or the faint-hearted or the struggling be put out of joint and fall further into dismay. Straighten the path. Be an example. Lastly, we strive for peace. 
Um, and evidence of running with endurance is that we strive for peace with everyone. We're to earnestly endeavor to live at peace with all others. Uh, and this is no passive pursuit, which in itself is a bit of an oxymoron. Uh, it, it, it doesn't guarantee that we'll be able to achieve peace. Paul told us that, right, in Romans. Um, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with, live at peace with all men. That's the call. And, and my prayer for you as you begin this new year um, is that you'll really have a passionate desire to see Ephesians 4, 3 lived out amongst you all. Um, where Paul writes there that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As he's grown us together, he wants to grow us together. Um, and what a testimony that is to a watching world. It actually helps to achieve the second thing that we'd be striving for, your sanctification. It's the Father's desire that we share in his holiness. And he disciplines us to that end. You know, I pray that as uh, 2023 again uh, launches, that that you truly will be um, individually and collectively marked by a patient endurance, one that's committed to staying the course, to running the race, that's motivated by all that Christ has done for you, that's made strong through the Father's intentional and loving discipline so that you're enabled and equipped to strengthen and straighten and strive in the ways that the text has mentioned. And if you're here this morning, it's possible. You know, we've been talking about um, these looks, looking at ourselves, looking around, looking at Christ. It's possible you've maybe never taken that first look at Christ. You, you've never come to see what it is that he has accomplished for you. And you could, you could start your new year off um, in a very strong way by taking a look to Jesus, knowing that, that, that he has suffered shame and anguish of the cross, taken your penalty and punishment for the joy of seeing lost souls saved. You can truly start it off right by turning from sin and turning to Christ. Well, let's pray as we close. Father, we're thankful for the gift of your word that helps to um, instruct and correct at times, to encourage, most importantly, to change us. It's living and active. And Father, I pray that uh, there, there I, I'm sure, have to be some that are just laboring to press on with life, to stay the course. And it may not be that their faith is faltering, but boy, it's just hard. And, and Lord, I, I pray that they might look to you and that you might just in a very profound and tangible way that you might let them know you are there. You promised to never leave and forsake them. Father, help them to sense that and to desire to press on. Help them to take a good look at Jesus and to look at the things that are encumbering their ability to, to move forward in the faith, to run with endurance. Father, I pray that you help them to that end. And may we all be um, encouraged as we think about the fact that the Father disciplines those who he it's a proof of sonship. And so I hope that you would I pray that you would help us to see that in profound ways. Um, this year and for the rest of our lives, we pray this in Jesus' name.